Hello, and welcome to this episode of Center Trails Podcast. I'm Tara Strauch. I'm John Harney. And we're happy to talk with you today. Um, today is September 11th, which is an interesting day to be a historian every year, uh, regardless of how long it's been since 2001. It's an interesting moment for reflection, which some people think of as history, but as a historian, it presents some interesting challenges, I think. So mm-hmm. I we thought we would just start by talking today a little bit about our memories of September 11th and then how um, historians deal with an event like September 11th. Yeah. September 11th is a really interesting one. And we'll talk a bit later about kind of what happens to like post-war, post-Cold War, world order and everything else. But it is, it's interesting for me as a non-American in America, because what I will often do is I'll tell the students the story I guess I'll tell now of my experience in 9-11, which is I was living in Ireland at the time, which is generally common for Irish people at the age that I was at. <laughs> um, and funnily enough, I was playing music with this American cousin of my girlfriend in a shed out behind his mother's house in As County Cork. As one does. As one does on a Tuesday. And so we were playing music and we were on our way to discovering that we were not going to be in a band together. And that's an awkward, long process. We were just beginning. And... <laughs> his mother came out and told us what had just happened. And so we went in, so we went in and we turned on, or she had the news station on. And um, we actually, I just missed the second tower. Cause it's interesting how many people have this experience of seeing the second tower being mm-hmm. hit. And I, I don't have that experience. I, I saw the aftermath of that and it was British cable news, which is a little different from, from American cable news, but like not that different. It wasn't BBC, you know, but a lot of the kind of presentation and stuff was very similar. The American presentation seemed a bit more colorful or flashier or something you know <laughs> but it's the same basic idea right which is they're showing this footage and there's a newscaster and and she was trying to kind of make sense of it and kind of bring people in they were calling people in and so he sat there and this had an additional really strange level that his father his parents were no longer together and his father actually worked in sesame street so oh wow might have been really close and i think ultimately was really close to the attack and thank god he turned out to be fine so they had this additional level. So myself and my other friend who had also been in the band or supposed the to band be the band that was never going the to band be. that was never going to be, we kind of decided we should probably leave. And so we did. And I remember we drove home. We were about 40 minutes or so from the city. And I turned on the radio and one of the local Irish radio stations, kind of one of the newer ones that wasn't fully established and didn't have this big like news framework to it. They switched over to, to an American station. And so he's had like the American feed driving home. And I'll never forget how scary that was and because my friend and I turned to each other and we thought this is it the Americans have lost it they've lost it and it's something I think a lot when I talk to Americans because Europeans really do look down at Americans a lot um, and it's often not justified. You mean that's not a myth? (laughs) It's definitely not a myth (laughs) Um, you know and, and George W. Bush hadn't been president of course for you know all that long but you know he wasn't the most popular American president at that time in Europe and people had lots of strange feelings about him when I moved to Texas five years later, I literally had educated friends say to me, so George W. Bush and Cowboys, is there anything else we should know about Texas? Like they, there was no concept of Texas as an actual place that people lived and worked in. So Europeans do have this attitude towards Americans. And we don't give our, we don't, we're not self-critical enough to understand we don't actually get America. But at that moment, the kind of the veil dropped a little and went, oh my God, all we do is criticize America, but what if they stop being what if they stop being in control? <laughs> what, if, what if this is it, you know? And there were lots of interesting mixed feelings, though, because in Ireland, Ireland had suffered terrorism for a very long time. And so there was a little bit, at least in private circles, not so much in 
the news and things like that. But I had conversations with other Irish people that were like trying to parse why Americans react in the way that they were or kind of explaining it in overly reductive terms, you know, of like, oh, well, I guess now they know what it's like kind of to have one of these attacks kind of thing. And that might sound terrible. It's certainly not meant to, but just kind of trying to figure it out and trying to parse it out. I remember, I think it was the Senate got together on the steps of the Lincoln Monument or something and sang America the Beautiful. Something like this happened the night of September 11th. I believe it, but yep. I don't remember it. And I remember watching that with complete disbelief. That was that was a complete cultural break where I'm like, I don't, you know, it that, this does nothing for me. I don't understand it. And then the next day, the, the, the uh, Irish government called a national day of mourning and everything was closed. Like you couldn't even get gas. So... There was something, it was really interesting the way that it bled into the day after. Mm -hmm. And obviously the weeks and the months and the years after, it's it's obviously there's a massive point. But it was really interesting to me the way all these things kind of came together. And there was a sense for me personally of kind of the veil dropping of of this European condescension towards Europe, at least temporarily. And then I moved to America, now it's gone forever. Uh, (laughs) And and also the Irish government's decision to call a day of mourning and really make a big deal about it as, as a show of solidarity. And there were lots of showing the solidarity across the world yes. in the United States as as I and I'm glad there was and, and it was shocking for people and as much as I was part of those conversations talk about well terrorism happens in Ireland and now it happens in the US those, those go away very quickly especially and I was still a teenager then especially to older people who were kind of saying no no this is a big deal like you can't equivocate this to Northern Ireland like right. this is this is a specific thing with its own context and that came through and then you know finally I guess I'll end my my story with when when America acted in Afghanistan and decided to go to war in Afghanistan, there was a broad reaction, at least from my point of view, my my testimony as it were. It's like, yeah, well, obviously that's going to happen. It was almost a sense of like, of course they're doing it. There was very little. There was, of course, some some protest, but mostly people were uh, okay with it. I suppose it it was Iraq where things got much more complicated. Yeah, I. I'm thinking I'm chewing on a lot now because I I guess as an American, I'd never really thought about putting it into its terrorism context. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is sort of crazy that we call um, car bombings and the the scale of September 11th terrorism as Mm -hmm. if they are the same thing. That's a really interesting idea. It makes me wish that we had um, John Earl in here right now. I know. Well, maybe we'll get him in soon. <laughs> My story then, because we thought it would be interesting to start with our memories mm-hmm. um, here right. so that then we could seg. And I am a, a American of a certain age. So I was a junior in high school on September 11th, 2001. And it was horrific and terrifying. But to put it into a larger context... It hadn't been that many years earlier that I had been transfixed by my very first major news, um, like, tragedy event, which for me was the Oklahoma City bombings, Mm -hmm. um, bombing. And um, that is the first one that I can remember sitting in front of the TV and just watching for hours. Mm -hmm. And so September 11th was terrible and awful, but to me it fit what I thought terrorism was. Mm -hmm. It was fire in a big building, and it was horrific on a kind of a large, massive scale. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was in my first, no, my second period class, my junior year, it was a social studies class and there had been some talk as I went from my first period to my second period class that something, something had happened, but come on, it's high school. Everybody thinks things are happening all the time. And then all of a sudden my social studies teacher disappeared because he had skills that were suddenly needed. And, um, 
he had family and that needed to be accounted for as well. Oh. And um, someone else came into the class. They rolled a TV in and we were watching when the second tower hit. Um, but most of the classes hadn't been watching yet. Um, it was a special thing because he had to leave class. And so as we walked to third period, we were spreading the news of the second tower having hit and you know, people are crying in the hallways and Mm -hmm. that was a surreal experience. Mm -hmm. And then for it to just cascade through the rest of the day to go home and still be watching TV, to watch TV all the next day in classes was, um, was a big deal. And it's interesting talking to our students now who were about three (laughs) when this happened. Um, and it's a big deal to them as a history event. They don't mm. even have the like vague recollections of it happening. They have nothing. Right. And um, I think what one of the things that, inter- that is interesting for me as a memory bit is that I still get emotional and I can't stop it. Even right. though, you know, I was in Northwestern Ohio, very far from trouble. Mm-hmm. I can't stop the emotion and my students can see that emotion and they don't get it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's something that I hear about that a lot. You know, you, you, in Ireland, we heard about it too. Like, why are people in Arizona upset? You know, and, and part part of it was going back to hearing the American radio and kind of panicking a little bit, like, oh my God, the Americans are losing it, is that, you know, there was no way of knowing, well, what does this mean? You know, is this going to go on for a week? Like, no, people didn't know, right? That was the whole thing. And then the Pentagon got hit and all these kind of, these kind of rippling effects. But it, I'm older now and less of a jerk really um well in this specific area less of a jerk and i think i don't know i find it fascinating like why wouldn't a young woman in ohio be deeply affected by it and especially this is this is the country was attacked right like this is a big deal like felt like americans were in danger and the tragedy of all those lives like why wouldn't you be affected by that yeah and americans at least you know 17 year old ohio girls uh, had never considered terrorism from outside as a true threat right. to the United States. Again, I, I thought of terrorism in context of homegrown terrorism. And, and I know mm-hmm. I was not the only teenage kid to think that way. Yeah. Um, so the, the realization that it could come from outside, that that, that America was that vulnerable, was, mm-hmm. was a deeply moving idea, even as a stupid 17-year-old. Yeah. And so when we bring this up, we share this because we wanted to talk about, you know, segueing into the notion of memory in the classroom. And as you say, our students don't think of it and this is something I haven't been teaching all that long this is actually my seventh year teaching full-time my own classes not including graduate school and so my early litmus test was the Berlin Wall where I would talk about the Berlin Wall and I was very young when the Berlin Wall fell but I remember it happening I also remember Nelson Mandela being freed and I distinctly remember my parents forcing me to sit there you're going to sit here and you're going to watch Nelson Mandela be freed and you're going to like it <laughs> and, and I really wanted to go and play like a soccer game in my bedroom and to this day, I'm grateful to them for that because I would say, oh, I saw Nelson Mandela being free. <laughs> you know, it's this big moment. But it's funny, even as a child, to have a, a cogent, coherent memory of it is a big deal. And, and memories of the wall falling and reporters being there and talking about it, like on some, even if it is a bit of a superficial or a thin way, I did experience it, right? Mm-hmm. And then for the first years of my teaching, I could turn to 9-11. Yeah. And I could ask them, what do you guys think of 9 yeah. Because five years ago, you're talking about people who, students who were nine mm-hmm. when 9-11 happened and, or a little bit older. And so they do remember it and they could talk about it and we could talk about it. And what does that mean? And now we can't. And it makes a really fascinating change. Yeah. And it's really, I think it's so interesting to see them consider it as history. 
Um, mm-hmm. Because for them, then it, it it is my job as a historian to explain it to them. Right. <laughs> um, 9-11, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and trying to explain to them that I don't have the distance to explain it historically. Right. They don't understand that, that you need to have distance on a subject mm-hmm. to, to do history, which is a fascinating thing to think about. And if you are listening to us and you've never considered this, most historians consider it a pretty important piece of 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 our our methodology that we have to be able to step back from the events and to look at it as people who are not affected by the the event now not all historians think that but but most historians accept that as a premise as much as is conceivable like i'm teaching a lot of first years this this fall and in my survey class which among other things ostensibly serves to introduce them to history methods i talk about when i was in college they would talk about you know uh, your goal is to write completely without bias and <laughs> this perfectly this perfect piece of writing that could in no way be impeachable um, but they told me that in college with the full knowledge I was never going to actually be able to do it <laughs> and so you can introduce them to this tightrope and I think at first their reaction is this sounds terrible would anybody voluntarily do this <laughs> but in my own example like I'm currently doing research on American Catholic priests in China in the 1930s and I am Catholic and I it is that constant checking of okay where am I and where are my assumptions and it's one of the reasons you know talking about 9-11 would be so immensely difficult because how do you separate yourself from it yeah I mean you can say I am a Catholic in the 21st century and right. I'm not a priest and right. I don't live in Asia right um so you have ways of gaining that distance mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it is and it's very hard I think if it for almost anybody who is alive in the world and mm-hmm. and a and engaged in American news mm-hmm. to find that kind of distance. Our, I think our students are increasingly dissatisfied with that. So I did this assignment on the first day of class with my survey students where I had them put a major events in American history um, on a timeline so that we could talk about what they do and don't know. And I would say almost all of them put September 11th on their their history timeline with the expectation that that is, was a valid thing to put in a, in a history timeline mm-hmm. uh, whereas I'm not sure that I will ever be at a place where I can put that on a history <laughs> timeline <laughs> well it involves you know saying things about ourselves as well right <laughs> I'm finishing up a blog post for the website for centertrail.com and just talking about why I chose a certain Monty Python video clip this morning and I was showing the Monty Python and some of them were laughing at it because no one expects a Spanish Inquisition and it's very funny <laughs> but there were a couple who were just like oh what is this what is this latest relic of the past this old man has brought to us, you know? And it's like, oh, yeah, I'm old. And it gets really interesting because when, when, when does something become history? Like, when's the limit? Like, this is, we're now 16 years in 9-11. Yeah. For me, it's interesting. And it's funny. I do this in my history survey, world history survey class where they have to write a research paper and I'll get students who want to do World War One. It's like, oh, well. And I, because it's supposed to stop like the 1890s or something <laughs> like that. And so I just kind of say, well, why don't you work up towards it? You know, that's what an historian would do. <laughs> Could you give me the yeah. really early roots of World War One, and we can give it a pass and I can let you write it? Whereas I can't really do that with World War Two unless you write a really interesting argument for why the Crimean War is the reason World War Two happened. Then you can write that. And I think 9-11 is kind of similar to me. And what I, I would, I always frame it, I did it earlier in this conversation, I would frame it as a post-Cold War, mm-hmm. immediate fallout of Cold War narrative. Where we have this really interesting decade after the Cold War ends where everyone's really optimistic yeah. and really happy. Bill Clinton is president and, <laughs> you know, 
for a while that was people, although lots of people didn't like Bill Clinton, but when Bill Clinton was riding high and there were moments where he was, there was this air of optimism, um, popular culture in the 90s, you know, clothing, music, you name it. There's this this really interesting, you know, there's this cultural freedom from ideology, which of course was never true, but that people felt, and it goes back to Francis Fukuyama, the intellectual, mm -hmm. who infamously said that it was the end of history, Yeah. Um, which, you know, he wrote whole books about this, but um, it obviously wasn't the end of history. But you get this decade where like, okay, we did it. Nuclear war isn't inevitable for the first time in a while. We can relax. And then 9-11 happens and, and everything. Now we live in a 9-11 world. And I think we do. Oh, um, we definitely live in a post 9-11 world. It, yeah. it is definitely a watershed moment. And I'm happy that my students can identify that and that even though they have no memory of it, they understand that mm -hmm. that, that shapes their world. I'm glad for that because I think it's an important revelation. Mm -hmm. I'm just not sure I'm there with them on how on talking about it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it does make me feel old. And where are we? You're the American historian. Where are we in periodizing ourselves? Because I, I do this a lot in history classes. Like Japan's a good example of this. Where I'll say, oh, we say classical and medieval. And here are the reasons those don't work at all. And now we know this, et cetera, et cetera. But we, we now live in a culture that's obsessed with like self-periodizing. And you look at the generations, right? Generation X, you know, <laughs> millennials, the baby boomers. Um, but also we do live in a post-9-11 world, but it's kind of strange as a historian to be living in the 2001 hyphen something stage. You know what I mean? And like Obama as president has this super obvious first ever African-American president. That's obviously going to be a component of his historical legacy. But apart from that, we don't know. I thought I knew how to place George W. Bush in some ways until we got a president, Donald Trump, right? And it does, <laughs> no, really, it changes yeah. the context. So I, is this is this a more recent thing that Americans are suddenly doing or... This is from a man who who knows what the Gilded Age was, kind of, but doesn't know much about what people are talking about it. Jim Crow, all these little eras. These little, <laughs> you know what I mean? These little nomenclatures we like to use. I will, I will answer that by going back to the colonial period, which is useless for most people, but I'm going to do it anyway. I bring up China constantly in this podcast. <laughs> I think you're fine. Uh, and I will say, I think there's something in some ways distinctly American about periodizing mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, colonial, and colonial New England was so on some levels obsessed with keeping um, with being better than the generation before it. Mm -hmm. And in, in, in that obsession was also their downfall. They, they, that meant that they were constantly fearing that they weren't as good as the generations before them. And they were very conscious of these generations, not necessarily naming them, but, but of keeping track of keeping score. And I think that is in some ways something pretty American of keeping score of where you are in history. And partly I think it's because we're so young, mm -hmm. right? We have to break things down into decades because we have nothing <laughs> on just about any other culture in the world. <laughs> I know. Some cultures like the Irish are just get it. The whole thing is one <laughs> massive tale of dispossession. I think, I think in one of the classes I had in college, I was informed that uh, anything less than a hundred years couldn't even really be a feud in Ireland. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> The final thing, I guess, well, I'll ask you, Tara, I feel talking about Berlin Wall or 9-11 or whatever, it's all part of this constant need, pedagogical need, maybe even personal need, to try and connect with the students, mm -hmm. right? And that, it just throws up such a fascinating conundrum where, like, you guys remember 9-11? They don't. But they probably remember Bin Laden being caught and killed, I suppose. But that that's, that's, that's such a different thing, you know, for me at least. Yeah, so I have a brother who is a, 
now he is getting a little older than our students, but he just a little bit older. He just graduated from college. Hi, Eric. I'll make you listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> and when he was in high school, maybe middle school, I was in, no, it must've been middle school or early elementary because I was in college and he calls me on the phone and he says, I have to interview someone who experienced 9-11. And it stopped me in my tracks because I wasn't very old yet to feel like I mm. had experienced anything worth someone interviewing <laughs> me for. Um, and it really put into perspective this distance. And I realized that I think part of continuing to connect with our students is to be able to turn around and then be that font of history. And we all know professors mm -hmm. um, who we now look to for, you know, tell me what the institutional history of the place is because you right. are old and right. you know, but not old. I didn't mean that <laughs> crap, <laughs> but who have a long institutional experience or, right. you know, colleagues who have mm -hmm. experienced more pedagogically and life wise. Sure. And I, I think it's one of those moments where we have to remind ourselves we aren't always going to be able to relate to our students. Going back to my little Monty Python moment. Oh, yeah. Some of them just don't get it or, or just don't want to. And that's OK. You don't have to like Monty Python. But <laughs> being around these young people all the time. I think it's a key skill though to recognize that you're not them. I will say I had my own Monty Python moment last week. So uh, apparently we are just going to continue to parallel our experiences without <laughs> even knowing it because I talked about the Salem witch trials. And so I had to show the Monty Pythons. Yeah. Uh, how do you know she's a witch scene? It's a fair cop. Such a great scene. You know, I, yeah. I have to. And again, yeah. most of them haven't seen it. Right. And, uh, you know, the ones who have are already giggling before you start it. <laughs> right. um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they are all watching it as if this is a historical event, um, not as though it is a bit of pop culture to enjoy. Right. And, I guess I will try to tie all this together by saying, so what is the difference between history and memory? Um, historians try to get distance from things without emotions. Mm -hmm. um, and memory is always going to have emotion attached to it and, and deeper personal meaning, mm -hmm. um, even if the event was hundreds of years before. And mm -hmm. so for us, both 9-11 and Monty Python are memory and not history. On the site this week, or really the end of last week, we had a really excellent piece from our colleague Stephen Dove talking about kind of how DACA or the potential ending of the kind of the DACA mechanic is showing up in his classroom, classroom discussions. It's great. I really urge you listening to go and read it if you haven't. Tara, I was hoping you're here and Stephen isn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I was hoping I could invite you to, uh, to talk about that a little bit and just introduce the piece to our listeners and also just kind of, you know, add, add some of your own. Yeah, so we we thought it would be great for Stephen to write a piece for the blog because our campus has been active in talking about what this move means and how we deal with students who are dreamers or who are undocumented. And I, most college campuses are having these conversations right now, and they're really good and important conversations to have. And so Stephen Dove is our Latin American historian. And so we thought it would be an interesting perspective for him to take. And I was thrilled with the way that he ended up formulating the post because I think he, he talked about something even more important than just saying the right things around campus about um, our obvious support for our students, whether they're dreamers or undocumented. We support all of our students and we will do everything we can to keep them here and keep them safe. But he, he actually took it one step further and thought about how you deal with this in the classroom when it is maybe it's not at all related to what you need to talk about for the day or are supposed to talk about for the day, but it is what's on your mind and on your student's mind and, and how you set that in the history classroom. 
I think it's an important conversation to have right now because we have lots of current events that have historical aspects to them. And students, on one hand, want us to address them. And on the other hand, we have to balance that in order to keep them, in order to make them the adults we want them to be, we have other historical events we need to cover. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And and I thought he did it well, which is to say that that having a historical presence, um, understanding the background of events, it it allows you to see the complexity, both of the present and the future. And I I think it's an important point. Yeah, and I think it fits with our earlier discussion, for example, about 9-11 and the sense of there's a lot of things going on in a classroom, right? And in particular as well, historically then, Stephen's piece educated me in the sense of the role of a Korean pianist. Yeah. uh, In the first emergence of DACA and the idea, you know, DACA turns into shorthand for illegal immigrants crossing the Mexican border, you know, and, and from there it sprouts in, you know, so many different conversations. I mean, it's no point even trying to qualify it. There's, there's you listening now have your own shorthand for what this topic is, right? I thought Stephen's post was wonderful and kind of pointing out, like all history, it's messy and you don't expect things like a Brazilian-born Korean pianist to be at the center of all this. Uh, you really do not. Who, who expects the Brazilian-born Korean pianist um, to be in the story? I did not. I feel like you should explain it a wee bit for people who haven't read it yet. <laughs> you, the post will still be useful to read because I'm doing this. I'm dancing around it. <laughs> who is this Korean pianist we keep talking about? Yeah, so in Stephen's piece, it, it, he starts with the fact that series of executive orders and proposed laws around dreamers actually stems from a Brazilian-born Korean pianist who was brought to the United States as a young child and was not going to be able to pursue an education at the college level and beyond because of their undocumented status. And I think this is one of the things that historians can do so well is to show, as we said, the complexities of current events But also, now there's this huge question in my mind, and I have to get Stephen to explain to me all the nuances of how the Korean, how this family ended up in Brazil in the first place. Because, again, Americans were so Mm -hmm. self-centered. We tend to think of all immigrants as wanting to come to us. Right. Immediately. Immediately, right? Why would you want to go anyplace else? There are other places? Right. And I think that's, this is an, an excellent way for people to enter this discussion historically mm-hmm. by saying no actually there are lots of other places in the world mm-hmm. that immigrants um would like to go uh america is not always the top choice and is often not a possibility either mm-hmm. and um so here i think is an excellent chance for world historians for historians of all stripes to to educate americans uh, and for us to have a better understanding of immigration yeah and i think you know even the simple task of the historian the, the DREAM Act is it eventually became known as something that's been on the books for, what now, 15 years or 12 years anyway. Yeah. If, this is a long-term thing. I think there's a lot of tendency to talk about this as an Obama-created thing. I mean, DACA itself obviously was an executive action from President Obama, but historians can do things like that. And in theory, this isn't the only way to do it. There's nothing stopping historians having emotion and emotional takes in their interpretations. But we can also ostensibly say, listen... This is the setup and focus on, for example, the complexity. These are the kind of people who are coming in. It's not just, it's not a template of a human being. This is what all these kids are. That's not, yeah. it's not that simple. Yeah. And so Stephen's piece is a nice foil from what we talked about in the 
first um, when we talked about 9-11 because we mm-hmm. talked about how historians need um, distance mm-hmm. from, right. from subjects. And uh, that does not mean that you don't have emotional responses to right. either current events or to historical subjects. Um, some of the best history I've read, I know the people who have written them, and then they talk about crying while they write the pieces. Mm-hmm. And, and that's we're not asking people not to be emotional what we say, what we're mm-hmm. saying, and I think what Stephen does well is to say, bringing the emotion to the classroom, letting people remember that that these are 700,000 plus mm-hmm. individual people mm-hmm. is really important and to feel that emotion. And then to also say, these are 700,000 plus people who came here for historical reasons. Right. Um, and understanding those will help us help those people. Right. And not necessarily with the intent of taking one or other position on, for example, a government policy. Well, <laughs> you know, you let your students do that. Yeah. Afterwards, they'll figure it out for themselves. Yeah. So talking about becoming emotional while doing history and <laughs> being in tears and crying, how has your class been going <laughs> this week? I couldn't resist such an obvious joke. Oh, well played. I don't think I or any students have cried that I know of. That's good. So step one. It's still week three. It's still week time. three. I'm still having a lot of fun. Both my both my sections of the survey class uh, and my upper level in Colonial America have been great partly because we've been talking about Jamestown and cannibalism, which Mm -hmm. perhaps sets emotions of a different sort. (laughs) But I have really enjoyed my survey class. We spent Friday, we spent last week talking about Boston and Salem. And then on Friday, we looked at a really interesting article about how Salem, Massachusetts has used its history for tourism and and thought a lot about um, the challenges of of historical tourism. Um, And that was a lot of fun. Cool. How about you? Same. You know, I, I this is going to get a very boring, become a very boring segment of every week. It's like, my students are wonderful. Um, <laughs> because spoiler alert, if they go bad on me one week, I'm probably just going to not mention it. You know, <laughs> it becomes a lie of omission. Um, now, they're continuing to be great. World history continues to be a trip, frankly. In the last week, we have gone from the Islamic world to Buddhism, to the Confucian system, to the Protestant Reformation. And we're going back to systems or monarchy on Wednesday. Although Wednesday does give me a chance to do another Monty Python clip of the extremely aggressively politically active peasant who complains about being oppressed. <laughs> help, help. <laughs> being, you know, this is, you know, being oppressed by the system. So, yeah, it's a trip, but it's going great. God love us. They're really sticking with me. My modern China class is lots and lots of fun because we're just talking about the formation of a whole new country. And it's fun sticking to, I guess, what will be a theme in the podcast and the site as an historian of Asia, although we increasingly have not just Asian American students, but Asian students, students visiting us, international students from Asia, we're still operating in this Western context. And so we get to talk about what does this mean in a Western context and, and what's going on here. And so it's been fun to invite them to talk about Chinese, Chinese history in the 1910s is, is not just about what Chinese people want for their country, but what does it mean to be a modern Chinese country? And that's been a really kind of fun thing to talk about. Well, at least for me. I th- but I think <laughs> I think most of them are enjoying it as well. But you get into these really interesting, nuanced ways of, I'm trying to contextualize this globally, and I'm trying to contextualize this for my mostly Western class, but it's still Chinese history, so we're going to stick with that. So it's going really well. I'm enjoying it. I'm going to ask you one quick yeah. question. How do students deal with jumping from Buddhism to Islam to the Protestant Reformation? You know, I think it's like a lot of things where... You can't, there's going to be a little bit of whiplash going on and you have to just kind of embrace it a little bit. And I think it's all about framing. So we may have mentioned this in one of the first two podcasts. I do a lot 
maybe the first five minutes, first 10 minutes of class, I'll ask for takeaways from the previous class from my students. And I think I did say this last time, this started out as a kind of a way for me to get better at including them. But now it's a great way for me to help and frame. So this is why I chose to put Buddhism beside Confucianism. It's not just because they're both happening in China, mm-hmm. you know. Um, that's kind of, That was kind of a, a neat, uh, that, that happened, it was a neat coincidence that it worked out that way. But why, what are we doing as historians? And so the first week or two of world history has been, how do these religious systems work? How do we condense them into these sometimes very one-dimensional representations of this is what this society means? And to clarify that humans do this, you know, it's not just Westerners and it's not just Chinese people, all humans do this. So that's what I've been trying to do. And I think that that's been my best effort at doing that, right? It's getting past the whiplash. I think there's nothing you can do about it to a certain extent, but trying to be clear with them, trying to really telegraph to them super clearly, this is why I picked these four classes to go together. This is what I want you to get out of it. And you just kind of hope for the best after that. So you sort of embrace the whiplash. Yeah, I think you have to for a world history class. And I was just talking to Steve Bowden this morning about this. I can never feel comfortable with History 110. It never feels comfortable. But that doesn't mean that I don't enjoy teaching it. You just can't cover everything from the dawn of time until 1850. (laughs) And when I teach 20th century history, it's the same thing, but it's a little different because I got a PhD in 20th century history or in Chinese history, rather it feels more like home territory and it's funny because I'm almost more comfortable I'm okay omitting things because I feel more confident about the omission whereas when I leave out basically all of the English Civil War and all those events I mention it briefly when I talk about the quote-unquote glorious revolution I know why I left it out I wouldn't say I'm confident of the reasons why I left it out (laughs) so it's just a funny and that's where you and I are different actually chronologically Tara because yes you're the US yes I'm China but also you're you're in exactly the area where I feel no confidence whatsoever. Um, I don't know how you feel about the 20th century. I don't know how it reflects back. Oh no, me and the 20th century don't really get along. <laughs> uh, I I overthink every single addition and omission when I have to talk about the 20th century. So yeah, that is me. Pros and cons. <laughs> well, I wanted to leave to talk really quickly about a Netflix TV show. <laughs> Because <laughs> we were going to do, you know, there's this idea of this regular rolling section. What have you been watching or reading or whatever? Um, and kind of, you know, what do historians never turn off their historical nerd brain part? So how do we enjoy any creative work ever? Um, and I promise you, Tara has some really cool stuff she's into, but not with a child with croup. Uh, no, this no, so sad. it didn't happen. That's a bummer. Um, but my wife and I have finally moved on from we had a baby in May, that child is now three months old. So that, that for my wife and me, that means three months of watching Law and Order every night, which you're <laughs> totally fine with. Falling asleep watching Law and Order with a child asleep on your shoulder. That's parenthood for me. Do you wake up at the beginning of every next episode though? Dun dun. It doesn't, no, it doesn't happen. <laughs> what happens is one of us will make a comment on the show and if it's, and if, if, if the one of us that does it has a child in such a way that you can't turn your neck, it's like, <laughs> Well, I guess she's asleep. I don't know. <laughs> but we recently made a huge step forward and moved on to actual something new. And we started watching this show, Stranger Things, on Netflix, which people have been telling me for ages is really good. And the reason I bring it up, actually, is not just, oh, we're watching a Netflix show, but it's set in 1983. Mm-hmm. And they do such a good job of nailing the setting of early 1980s United States. It was such a good job. So, says the Irishman. <laughs> well, that's true. That's a very good point. And that, that actually fits into Stranger Things is very meta. Like they have this very kind of John Carpenter style theme tune. Um, the the opening, the text of the show that opens up the show is clearly a kind of a, it looks like a Stephen King inspired TV mm-hmm. show type thing. It's all very meta. So that's actually a great point you just mentioned. <laughs> 
Because I had this point with an American friend a couple of years ago where when I was a boy, Back to the Future 2 for me was like, Back to the Future 1 and 2 was like, that's what America is, you know? (laughs) No, really. Like, it's like people who say man a lot and they wear sneakers, right? And they're skateboarding everywhere. So so I guess that's a good point. The Stranger Things is tying into that meta. Um, But the reason I I think it does a good job is 80s nostalgia is big now and has been Mm -hmm. for a long time. But Stranger Things doesn't actually completely overdo it. So there is this character. She's the mother of two of the important uh, children characters, young characters, I should say. And she is like super duper Farrah Fawcett is my spirit animal type, you know, hairstyle, you name it. Um, But there are other adult characters in the show who just look like, you know, people like like they live in a culture dominated by things that are popular in the 80s, but they're just they look normal. You know what I mean? Like they don't. They, they're just a regular person who who is surrounded by people who look like Farrah Fawcett. And, and it's just that little, that little, this, the, the success in holding back just a little, just a little bit, and not making everything super 80s, actually strengthens it and makes it a fun genre piece then because they're bringing in the Cold War in a, in a really interesting and surprisingly subtle way because it's basically a monster story. And, and I, I re- I, I'm really, really I've, enjoying it. I've seen 30 seconds of it and then I begged my husband to turn it off because I don't <laughs> like scary things. <laughs> and everyone swears that it's not scary, but those 30 seconds were scary. They're, they're kind of lying. They're kind of lying. <laughs> but I will just then say, so what it seems to me that you like about it is mm-hmm. that as a historian, it's believable. It, it, it yeah. is not memory in the sense that, that everything is the 80th thing in the right. entire world. That's exactly right. And, there's, and, and they think they've been faithful to their own vision. This is what this town looks like in our minds. And it's hilarious that it hadn't even dawned on me that they're playing off the same stuff that like I watching from a continent away was playing off. That's a great point. But they're they're kind of being they're they're being I think they've kind of constructed their own history if that makes sense. They're like yeah. this 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 setting we have for our story is nineteen it's in nineteen eighty three. What does that mean for our setting? What does it mean for what our characters look like? And all the people of course in a TV show, the costumers, all these different mm-hmm. people. I just love that they're they've committed to it almost as this is they their own curated type of it, as opposed to let's just throw in every eighties reference we possibly can. Well I think that's I think this is a great way to end this this podcast because really that's what we've been talking about in most of these mm-hmm. segments. Um, for historians, it is about creating our own narrative based on the primary sources. And so in, in, in the case of Stranger Things, what you like about it is that they've created their own. It, it is not a facsimile of the 1980s, right? It is their own right. world constructed out of, out of events right. in their little mythical timeline right exactly. um <laughs> and and that works for us because what what we want to do is not give in to memory because because memory has its own particular um biases right um and and if you give in to to mem- to public memory or to your own historical mm-hmm. memory of, of events uh, you're going to miss things yeah and, and that's what we're trying not to avoid right that's exactly right well thanks for listening we're going to call it a day the podcast is now available on iTunes. So if you've been listening by checking on the blog site or something like that or using links, you can now add us uh, through your smartphone or some other device, or other podcasting listening software that you might use. If you like the podcast, do consider leaving a review on iTunes. I'm told that that helps with algorithms and all these things that um, when I chose to get a PhD in history, I forsake the po- I forsook the option of learning how the hell any of that works. Um <laughs> 
So do consider leaving us a review if you're enjoying the show. Uh, if you're not, then don't leave us a review. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and as always, we're at centertrail.com, C-E-N-T-R-E. And we love hearing from people. There's links on the site for ways to contact myself and Tara, either over Twitter, or you can get a link to our faculty pages, which lets you email us directly. Yeah, and we're looking forward to being back again with you next week. 